Well, I'm going to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Love, the Off Switch of Fear. Is it really that easy? I mean, is it really that simple? Does it really boil down to love, turning off the switch to fear? For so long, the church has kind of chased her tail and I think has really overlooked the bread of life, the essence of what we need to switch off fear. I know this is an issue because it doesn't take you very long to be with someone when you're with someone to find out they're, they're struggling, they're afraid of certain things. And I have seen it range from the mountain to the molehill, to be honest with you, that people are concerned about the littlest things and they have not fully put their trust in God. I mean, we have to come to this conclusion, folks. We have to come to this awareness, if you will. Either we're going to trust Him with both the little things and the big things, or we're not going to trust Him at all. And I think He can be trusted. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. So I am ministering this morning through a message called Love, the Off Switch of Fear. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. Fear is a powerful and debilitating emotion, probably one of the most debilitating emotions there is. But it disappears in the presence of perfect love. How many of you believe that this morning? Fear not just dissipates, it vanishes in the presence of perfect love. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that love drives out, love casts out. Perfect love casts out fear. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that two 100-story buildings stand next to each other. There's the space of a football field that separates the two of them. And on the 100th floor of one building to the 100th floor of the other building, there's a skywalk about the width of a sidewalk. And this skywalk or sidewalk is structurally sound, but it has no guardrails. And you have been commissioned, encouraged, if you will, by God to walk the distance of 300 feet from building A to building B. Does the thought that you are 1,250 feet above unforgiving concrete, does that scare you a little bit? Does that frighten you a little bit? See, that's just natural fear. And that's understandable. Peter was walking on the water. He became afraid. It's natural fear that's at work. But as Peter would mature in his faith, and as Peter would mature in his love for Christ, and as Peter would receive Christ's love for him, there would come a day that he would no longer be afraid. Even to the point, the historian said, he said, crucify me upside down, for I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner that my Savior was crucified. All the fear had left him. 
Oh, he was afraid earlier in life. He was afraid when he was walking on the water. Oh, yeah, we know that. Why? How do we know? Because he said, Lord, save me. We know he was afraid when in the courtyard he got recognized and he denied Jesus in the courtyard. Why did he do that? Because he was afraid. See, perfect love had not done its work yet. So don't throw yourself under the bus. Don't get condemned about this. It's a slow drip. But for so long, the church has taught us to run down alleys. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with some of these roads that we've went down. Because we have not given as much attention to the love of God, the love of Christ, and what this love does for us, a big portion of the church still walks in fear of things they should not be afraid of. There are hundreds of thousands of believers who feel like they've committed the unpardonable sin. There are millions of believers over time that have toggled in and out of the feeling that they have lost their salvation. Now they've got it back. It's like a coin or something, you know. It's like your car keys. I lost them for the moment. Now I got it back. It shouldn't be that way. And it wouldn't be that way if love was taught like it should be taught in the church. Because perfect love deals a death blow to fear. And all that is, is just fear tactics from the enemy. See it for what it is, friends. That's all it is. So if we had to walk this skywalk, no guardrails, from one building to the other, I think natural fear would probably set in, even if God said, do it, and even knowing that God loves you. God loves you. Now, you could reason with yourself by thinking, when was the last time I fell off of a sidewalk? Friends, I have walked thousands of miles of sidewalks. Maybe you have too. Just live long enough. If you have it, you will. I don't recall even one time falling off the sidewalk. Now, I remember a couple of times maybe tripping and still staying on the sidewalk. So why is it that a sidewalk doesn't bother us if it's on the ground, but a hundred stories up, suddenly we lose our confidence? Why is that? Good question, isn't it? I've got a pretty good track record going down sidewalks, but in all my practice of walking down sidewalks, reasoning wouldn't be of much value to me in that moment because when I had to go from one building to the other, logic, reasoning, and my track record would get hijacked undoubtedly by that fear, that emotion we call fear. As I said before, fear can be one of the most devastating, one of the most powerful, one of the most destructive, one of the most debilitating forces there are. It's an emotion is what it is. It has put people in the loony bin. 
It has put people in the hospital. It has put people in the graveyard because they were so afraid. And if there's one thing that I have learned in life, and I've learned a few things, right? But if there's one thing I know that I've learned for sure, neither logic nor reasoning is the off switch of fear. You cannot reason it away if you're afraid of something. You can't reason it away. Logic and reasoning are companions of fear. You try that on a little child sometime. Try to reason with one that no monster is under the bed. All the reasoning in the world doesn't help. All the logic in the world doesn't help. You cannot reason away fear. Love, come on, love is the off switch. Love turns off the switch of fear. Could it be that easy? That's biblical. I think it can be. Where does this love come from? Where can I get this kind of love? Can I buy a loaf of love at the store? No. PJ, you even know that, don't you? Can I borrow a ladle of love from my neighbor? No, I can't get it there either. Can I concoct a potion of love in my laboratory? No. Friends, there is one source of love. Come on. There is one source of love. If the presence of God were to be removed in an instance, the presence of God from the earth, everybody in this world would hate each other. Love begets love. Love gives birth to love. You can't get two hateful things together and produce love. Impossible. It's only love that begets love. We get love from love. And God is love. Therefore, love comes from trusting in and fully or entirely relying on the unconditional love of God. Friends, it's unconditional. There are no conditions to God's love. God is unconditional love. And as God's love, come on, becomes active in our lives, in other words, as it awakens in our lives, as we begin to see Him for who He is, it will serve as the off switch of fear. Do you know how easy it is to turn a light on? It's just a switch. Is letting go of fear that easy? Yes, in love, it is that easy. But it's a process, I get it. So, let's ask the question, what is getting in the way? What is getting in the way of believers walking in this love? What's getting in the way? Something's got to be getting in the way. Could it be something as cryptic as unbelief? Could that be it? 
I'd say yes. You see, unbelief has its roots in the soil of love for the wrong things. It has its roots in the soil of love for the wrong things. That's all. If you could just redirect the love to God and allow his love to flow through you, a channel that goes both ways, friends, you'll walk away from this fear. It will not have its hold on you. Is there anything that can be done about our unbelief? What can be done about that? If that's the culprit, if that's what's getting in the way, what is it that could be done about this unbelief? Yes, something can be done. However, if we live our lives in a mode, in this attempt to modify or eradicate every culprit that comes along, we will die exhausted. You'll never come to the end of them. You'll get better in certain ways, but a new one will surface. Kind of like when I was a 15-year-old boy. How many of you had pimples at 15? You just get rid of one of them and boom, there's another one. You get rid of that one and boom, there's another one. Then it's right in the middle of your forehead. I mean, I just hated those things, man. And if that's what we want to do, there'll be no end to it. You'll always be putting out fires. So what you've got to do is you've got to let the flora get changed. I'm talking about the spiritual bacteria of the relationship that you have. How many of you know that about 80% of your immune system is in your gut? That's why when you take an antibiotic, it kills all bacteria. Bad bacteria, good bacteria. And you have to reestablish the flora through something called probiotics. It makes sense, doesn't it? The flora of the relationship, the foundation of the relationship, the spiritual bacteria, if you will, of the relationship has got to change. Otherwise, you'll always be on 911 calls, running to put out this fire and put out that fire and calling the paramedic for this thing. How many of you want to live a life like that? I don't want to live like that. I want to live at peace. The 911 phone is not ringing, right? We've been taught that the essence of our Christian walk is grace by faith, but grace and faith, they got to come from somewhere. Grace and faith flow from the portal of God's love. You take away His love, there is no grace, there is no faith. What do the scriptures tell us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, God so loved the world that he allowed this river of grace. He allowed this river of faith to flow so that we would have the ability to apprehend this love of his. Love. Come on. Love is the essence of our Christian walk. Love is the essence of our spirituality. It's love. There's no higher goal in life than love. And you know what you're going to find out? Your love for him is going to intensify in direct proportion to the love that you receive from him. You keep his love at a distance, I guarantee you'll never love him the way that he has purposed and wanted you to love him. 
For his benefit? No, for yours and mine. It's for our benefit. What if we did away with the scary skywalk? Can we just do away with that for a second? Is love truly, is it truly the off switch of fear? What if there was a better way to live this Christian life? What if there's a better way? What if there was a shorter list to memorize? A list that reduced the 613 commandments down to just one man. Come on. I can memorize that list. But it would take me a lifetime to memorize 613 commandments and all the nuances of them. Well, friends, that's precisely what Jesus came to do. He came, yes, he came to reveal the love of the Father. That's why he came. It's something that the people from the Old Covenant were not familiar with. A few of them got a glimpse of it, like David, maybe Isaiah, but the common folks were not familiar with God's love. It was all about rules and laws. It was about commandments. It was about worship in the only way they knew how to worship God, through sacrificial things. He came to set our hearts at rest. He came to show us the love of the Father. You see, without love... There is no lasting peace. You'll find your peace is connected to love. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you think God just took all nine of them like dice and threw them out there and said, which one's going to come up first? No, he was very intentional about this. He said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control. He laid them all out there, but he began with Love. But this love is connected to this peace. And the more one experiences this love, the more one will walk in peace, which can be an antonym of fear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, we find these words. Come on, these are so familiar scriptures, friends. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love. Now, what does he say? He says, I am nothing. The Apostle Paul is writing here. He's had an up-close and personal encounter with Christ, the one who loves us with an everlasting love. He spent time with Christ. He got the new covenant from Jesus himself. Next scriptures. He said, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, in some versions say to the flames, that I may boast, but do not love, I gain nothing. It's a sobering set of scriptures, isn't it? 
if you're not motivated by love, it's just a resume of impressive acts. You being the only one who's impressed. That was a pretty impressive resume, wasn't it? If I do this, move mountains, and give all my stuff to the poor, that's pretty impressive. You put that on your resume, that's pretty cool stuff. But he said, but if I don't love, he said, I'm nothing. I gain nothing. The Apostle Paul had learned what love looked like. And he was aware that the Corinthians were not walking in love. So that's why he wrote what is known as First and Second Corinthians. And this is why he wrote what is what we call the love chapter. He didn't call it that, but sandwiched right in First Corinthians is what we call the love chapter, chapter 13. What gave the disciples the courage to lay down their lives as martyrs? Was it the resounding gong? <laughs> or was it the clanging symbol of good works? No. Was it grace or faith? No, friends, it was love. Remember, grace and faith flow from the portal of God's love. It's our way to apprehend His love by grace through faith. It was love. You see, when each of the disciples faced their own horrible deaths, love served as the off switch of fear. And all you have to do is just go and read. You'll see how the disciples were martyred. One was sawed in two. One was speared. A couple were crucified. Some died by the sword. They took the apostle John. You know what they did with him? Took him out into some big arena and thought they were going to have fun with him and took him and got this big vat of oil just boiling like you'd put french fries in. And they dunked him in that oil and left him down in there for a little while. When they pulled him back out, he was praising God. Everybody in that arena was converted that day. My main point is when they faced death, they didn't face it with fear. Why? Because they had been seasoned over time with God's love, the revelation of God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace. They had been seasoned with His love. Come on, you know these scriptures. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And I love this one, probably one of my favorites. It says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Come on. Now, you're going to appreciate that someday when you stand before him. In fact, you should start appreciating that right now. That love, which is God, God's love for us, keeps no records of wrong. Now, how did the Apostle Paul know to write that? Because Jesus would have told him that. Jesus would have said, you know, Paul, when you write your letters, I want you to write that love, which is my daddy. He keeps no record of wrongs. None. There's not a file cabinet up there, John. I've been there. I've spent an eon with my daddy, an eternity with my daddy. I've not come across a file cabinet yet. It's not there. 
It's just not there. And then he says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I love this part. Love never fails. It would do us good to commit that to memory. Next time you find yourself in a situation, especially a fearful situation, whether it be in the natural, just the mental, spiritual battle, whatever it may be, I want you to remember that if all you have to do is speak into that moment and just say, love never fails. Love never fails. I'm telling you, those are three of the most powerful words you'll ever speak. Oh, you could get on your rant and you can just start going through all kinds of things, but how about just love never fails? Love won't fail me in this situation. Love won't fail my mind. Love won't fail my body. Love won't fail me in this situation, okay? Love never fails. Now, the deeper I get into my Christian walk, the more I desire God's love. In fact, as the Holy Spirit was putting this message together in my heart yesterday morning, the tears just began to flow. It was very early. There was something about his love that was just working in my heart at that moment. And it kind of took me by surprise, to be honest with you. The moment was just so tender, so sweet, so filled with love, so filled with his presence. And I thought, wow, I'm still getting moved by this love. I'm still getting touched and blessed by this love. And so the deeper I get into my Christian walk, the more I'm coming to the realization that it's His love that I need more than anything. It's His love that I want more than anything. And I already have it, friends. I don't have to go looking for it. I already have it. But it has to awaken on the inside of me. And it is doing just that. And I couldn't help but think, when my life is all said and done, I don't want to be remembered for my accomplishments or because of my resounding gong or clanging cymbals. That doesn't impress me. At my funeral someday, may it be said over my still body, he loved with a patient kind of love. He loved with a never-failing love. That is the greatest compliment you could ever pay me. What kind of love am I talking about? I'm talking about the Father's love, the off-switch of fear. The Apostle Paul continues, he says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but look what he says now. He says, but when perfection comes, come on. He says, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. Now, 
I want you to take a look at how the Strong's Concordance defines perfection. Next slide. The word perfection that the Apostle Paul just used there comes from the Greek word teleos. It means completeness, perfect, finished. And he said, when completeness, when perfection comes, when it is finished comes, he says, the imperfect will disappear. Has perfection come? Yes, he was nailed to a cross. Perfection came, friends. In other words, what he's saying there is when the revelation that we have been recreated in absolute perfection. Now see, the body of Christ doesn't believe, a lot of them don't believe that. But when you awaken to that soul reality that you have been recreated, born again, whatever you want to call it, you're a brand new creation, brand new creature. When that reality begins to grow a root system in your heart, that you have been recreated in absolute perfection and completeness, we begin to lay aside our gong mallet. We begin to lay aside, set aside those clanging symbols. The imperfections disappear in the presence of perfect love. The perfect love is the love of Christ for us. You say, Mark, what are the imperfect things that disappear? See, we can't get on this list here, friends, so we've got to shorten this thing, right? But can you give me a little bit of an example? What are the imperfect things that disappear? Number one, a life that is motivated by law and performance. That is an imperfect way to live your Christian life. That disappears. Boasting and pride disappear while under the influence of perfect love. Dishonor, anger, and our file cabinet of wrongs are consumed when the revelation of you are complete. You are perfect. You are finished. You know what you do? You throw away the file cabinet. Fear disappears in the presence of perfect love. Love is the off switch of fear. 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. Here's what John wrote. He said, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Come on, you with me so far on that? If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. Can we put a check mark there too? Yes, let's do that one. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Quit relying on the love you have for God now, because that kind of love will disappoint you. We rely, it says, on the love God has for us, and then it says God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete. Remember, complete, perfect, finished. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment 
in this world, we are like Jesus. Does that make you feel happy and fuzzy, warm on the inside? That in this world, we're already like Jesus. Come on. Am I in the Word? Yes. In this world, not just in the by and by, not over the hilltop in the mansions. No, in this world, it says, we are like Jesus. How is Jesus? Perfect, complete, finished. We are like Jesus. Next scripture. Now look at this. There is no fear in love. You knew I was going there, didn't you? Come on, you cut me off at the past, didn't you? You knew I was going there. John wrote these words. He says, there is no fear in love. Why? Because love becomes the off switch to fear. It pulls the breaker, if you will, on fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Do you see that? It drives it out. It casts it out. It literally in the Greek means violently. It means it throws it against the wall. It crushes it. Perfect love drives out fear. Come on. Who's got perfect love? Christ has got perfect love. God's got perfect love. Untainted, unblemished love. And he says, when that perfect love appears, when that love shows up on the scene, then... It will drive out fear. So, friends, come on. If we're going to live this Christian walk and we're going to make a difference, then we've got to learn this love thing. But it doesn't start with us developing a list of things to do. Those are expressions of love. It's all about coming into the revelation of how much God loves us and what his love does for us. It casts out all fear. Now imagine your life with zero fear. I'm not talking about physical fear, walking from one building to another up on top, but you could get to the point where that wouldn't bother you too. But I'm talking about the irrational fear that Satan tries to bring into our minds. But perfect love dries out fear because fear has to do with punishment. That's why we fear. We've somehow feel like we're going to get punished by God, by man, whoever it may be. But fear is always connected to punishment. That's why we're afraid. But if you're taught right in church, if you've learned from a child or you've been reprogrammed that we have nothing to be afraid of with him, we have no punishment waiting us. Why? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. You got that? You attach it to this? He's in this same chapter, man. It's not there. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Come on. He first loved us. The question that often arises is how do I access God's perfect love? How do I get this perfect love? Everything in God's kingdom works by grace through faith. There's nothing in his kingdom that does not work by grace through faith. We deserve nothing. We access it by grace, the unmerited favor of God, and we apprehend it by faith. Isn't this easy? He's given us the grace. He's given us the faith. Everything in God's kingdom works by grace through faith. It is in the same manner that we receive his perfect love by grace through faith. 
Friends, our resumes of impressive acts can serve as a distraction to that which is far greater, perfect love. You've got the ribbons. You've got the trophy. You've got the accolades. You've got your star on Hollywood Boulevard. You've got all that to remind people, including yourself, what you've done. But that can serve as a distraction at times. Not about what we've done. It's about who we are. It's something that's far greater than what we've done. It's about receiving this perfect love. We can lay down our gong mallets. We can set aside those annoying symbols of performance as we remind ourselves, come on, that we are just like Jesus. Isn't that what the Apostle John said? We are like him in this world. Perfect and complete, a finished work, and we are held together by the love of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, how many of you have heard me quote this scripture before? <laughs> For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified or those that are holy. For by one offering, that's the offering of Jesus on the cross, he has made you complete, he has made you perfect, he has made you finished. How long are we perfect for? What does it say? Come on, help me out. What does it say? How long are we perfect for? 100 years? Forever. That's what it says. By one sacrifice. Did Jesus get sacrificed? Yes. How many times did he get sacrificed? Once. So it's already done. By one sacrifice, he hath perfected. He has made you complete forever. Come on. That's good news. For them that are sanctified, those that have been made holy, again, by Jesus' blood. The word perfected there in Hebrews 10.14 is the same Greek word that the apostles Paul and John use when they spoke of our perfect union in Christ. Our perfection comes through His once-for-all all at once, sacrifice on the cross. Friends, don't think it's strange that your loveometer, is there such thing as that? <laughs> a loveometer? <laughs> that your loveometer has never reached the top floor. Don't think that's strange. Remember, love begets love. And the more you look at love, the higher you climb in love. The more he raises you up in his love. There's one source of love, and the more you see this love and embrace the love of the Father, the more you will mature in love. You can't mature in love in any other way other than going to the source of love, which is the Father, and seeing that love in action. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul concluded his exhortation on love with in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He was talking about what love looked like 
And then he was talking about how eventually he matured in that love. Let's look at the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. He said, when I was a child, I spake or I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Oh, come on. But when I became a man, when maturity came, when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Next scripture. And then he says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Come on. He just worked his way through all kinds of things. Look at this impressive resume. It really means nothing if I don't love. All these X mean nothing. This is what love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always rejoices. And he works his way through that. And what he's basically getting at is he's saying, I didn't know about all this stuff. Because I was a child. He's not really referring to when he was a little boy. You can be a grown person and still be a child in your intellect, in your understanding. He said, but as the revelation of his love began to mature in my heart, he said, I put away childish things. In other words, as a child... Paul processed things in very natural ways. That's what children do, right? He used his senses. You know how a baby always wants to taste stuff? The eyes are just not enough. Even the smell is just not quite enough. The touch is certainly not enough. Baby's got to taste it, doesn't he? He's got to put it in his mouth to find out. And this is what the Apostle Paul is getting at. He's saying, when I was a child, I processed things in very natural ways. He used his senses. He used all of his default settings, the way he understood things. He reasoned with things. Paul was an intellect. Paul was super, super smart. In fact, he was called a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the cream of the crop. Faith, hope, and love were were not even on the Apostle Paul's instrument panel. None of that made any difference. He didn't have to operate by faith. He just had to obey laws. He didn't care about hope. He certainly didn't care about love. They weren't even on his dashboard. But it says here, when he became a man, in other words, again, when he had matured in love, He quit trusting in his own gong. He quit trusting in his own clanging cymbals. And he quit trusting in his own ability to reason things out. He had fallen in love with Christ. And this love served as the off switch to ignorance and fear. The Apostle Paul was fearless. How? 
because he was constantly resting in the Father's perfect love and peace. One time they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. They came out, they prayed for him. He probably woke up and said, what happened? Well, they stoned you to death, Paul. You know what Paul did? He went right back into the same city, the Bible says, and spent the night. That's fearless! That's all you can do to me? Kill me with some rocks? Jesus will raise me up. He was fearless, friends. He was resting in the Father's perfect love, and love begets this peace. When you're walking in this love, it just releases peace. In Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, we find these words. Watch this. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, friends, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher! Don't you care if we drown? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Come on, these words, friends, peace be still. These are not long prayers, are they? Love never fails. Three words, peace be still. Three words. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I got a couple questions for you. Was Jesus in the stern? Yes. Was Jesus in the storm? Yes, he was in the storm. But Jesus also knew that he was in the strength of the Father. He wasn't relying on his own strength. He was relying on his Father's strength. So easy for us to forget that. And he knew his daddy would never let him down. His strength would always be available. Why? Because his daddy loved him. See how it's all connected? You see, when Jesus said, peace be still, it was not a suggestion, it was a directive. Okay? We play around with too many suggestions. Plan B's. No. This was a directive by the Lord. It wasn't hope alone that seized the breath of the wind and silenced the voice of the sea. It was faith expressed through love, the love for his disciples. He didn't want to see them afraid. 
It didn't concern him. He's sleeping. So why is he rebuking the wind and the waves? They really haven't done anything wrong. They're scaring his disciples. He knows what fear does to a person. Without absolute confidence in the Father's loving kindness, Jesus would have also been fearful, but he had total confidence in his Father's loving kindness. Jesus was not only confident in his Father's faithfulness, but also in his identity as a son. That's so important. That you become confident in who you are in Christ. Not arrogant, friends. Confident. It's a difference, okay? He was confident in his identity as a son. And he knew as a son, he had every right to his father's wealth. Everything at his father's disposal. He knew that he could approach the throne of grace where he could find mercy and grace to help him and them in their time of need. He knew that his inheritance, come on, was the body of Christ. He already knew why he was here. The Father had told him at a very young age why you were here. So he already knew that his inheritance was the body of Christ and without the shedding of his blood that there would be no forgiveness of sin. Therefore, the sea, as cantankerous, as fussy as it was, was not his end. You need to hold on to some promises God has made you too. You see, the cross as the means of Jesus' death had already been prophesied by the psalmist David. In Psalm 22, David wrote, A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Who do you think David's writing about? Crucifixion had not even been developed yet when David wrote those words. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The Greek word behind our English word peace refers to the inability to speak. Jesus, when he said, peace be still, literally muzzled the boisterous wind with those words. Peace be still. I want to ask you a question. Where did Jesus' peace come from? Where did it come from? It came from the revelation of his Father's love for him. No matter what I face, no matter what comes against me here, my Father loves me. This was not a voluntary surrender of the wind, but rather involuntary stillness and the inability to speak. Jesus had taken its voice right away from it. So I want to ask you a question. Where did Jesus get such wisdom? How did he know what words to say in the moment that terrorized his disciples? In releasing the words, peace be still, Jesus had reached back into one of the Psalms, a Psalm that his disciples and every Jew would have been familiar with at the time. And as you and I face tumultuous wars, financial desolations, 
and the surging of enemies, I want us to remember the promises that were written by the sons of Korah in Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 to 10. Listen to these words. I love these words. Come on. Friends, these ought to be hanging in every home. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. You know that one, don't you? God is our refuge and strength. And when he says an ever-present help in trouble, that word trouble literally means tightness. We find ourselves in tight spots all the time. We're tight on time. We're tight on income. But it's in times like these we speak peace. And that peace that originates from love becomes the off switch to fear in that moment. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, come on. Oh, that got me excited, sorry. Therefore, what does that word mean? It means for that reason. What reason? God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. For that reason. I don't need to give you 10 reasons for that reason alone. He uses that word. Therefore, we will not fear. Do you see that? Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. A lot of activity, very seismic activity going on here. He says even when all of that is going on, I'm going back to God is my refuge and strength, the ever-present help in the time of trouble. He said, there's a river whose streams make glad <laughs> the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see. Come on. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And then look at the last part of this. He says, come on, be still. And I believe in that moment when Jesus was awakened from the stern of the boat, his heart drifted all the way back to what the psalmist had written, and he said, be still. God is our refuge and fortress, an ever-present help in trouble. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I've got a couple of questions for you. Is it possible to find peace in the midst of conflict and war? Think about it for a second. Can I still find peace? With all the conflict, all the war, all the turmoil that's going on in this world, can I still find peace? Yes. Can peace be apprehended when mountains fall, seas squall, and nations brawl? Yes. How is that possible, you ask? Because God is not only with us, He is in us. 
He is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Remember, the word trouble translates as tightness. When the economy tightens because of inflation, and when our chest tightens because of intimidation, and when our emotions tighten with vexation, our response is to be still and know that He is God. But how? How can such peace come? Peace comes out of being assured that our Father dearly loves us. Hear those words this morning. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. You say, yeah, but that was about Jesus. No, as He is, so are we in this world. Amen? Again, in releasing the words, peace be still, Jesus had reached back into one of the Psalms to remind the wind and the waves that He had authority over the tightness they had brought upon the disciples' chests. And Jesus has given us the same authority over the tightness experienced when the Old Covenant law is preached. Jesus communicates the words, Peace, be still. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Let not your heart be troubled, let not your heart be filled with tightness, nor let it be afraid. We see another example in the Scriptures of Jesus' disciples dealing with fear. They were always dealing with fear. After Jesus had been crucified and then subsequently raised from the dead, you know what he decided to do? He decided to pay a visit to his fearful and disillusioned disciples. This is the goodness of God, isn't it? Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace, there you go again. See, in the midst of all this fear, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why are you filled with tightness? Don't you know that my daddy is an ever-present help in trouble? So why are you troubled? He's asking us that today too. Why are you so troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? And then he says, Look at my hands and my feet. The same purest hands and feet that David prophesied about in Psalm 22. In other words, by looking at my hands and feet, you're able to see what love has done for you. And when you understand the magnitude of my love through the scarred hands and feet, you will no longer feel. Then Jesus says, It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, 
Do you have anything here to eat? Showing that he's a man. He's not only God. He's not just a ghost. He's a man. Ghosts don't eat. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in his presence. Then he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Watch what he says. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In particular, Psalm 22, where he said, The evil men surrounded him. They had pierced his hands and feet. And also in Psalm 46, where he said, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city, watch what he says, until you have been clothed with power from on high. You got that? Stay in the city till you've been clothed with power from on high. The first clothing from the power on high is actually the clothing of Adam and Eve. I got a question. What emotion was Adam and Eve wrestling with after they had sinned. What motion was that? Scriptures tell us plainly they were afraid. They were wrestling with fear. But God, in His loving kindness, clothed them with the skin of animals. That means an animal had to lose its life. You can't clothe someone with an animal skin without the animal losing its life. The clothing by God of Adam and Eve was a type and shadow of Jesus the Lamb of God, who would be sacrificed to clothe us with power from on high. And as believers, we have been clothed with a garment of salvation, and we have been robed in righteousness. I'm talking about a salvation and righteousness that never needs washing. It never needs mending. It doesn't need tailoring. You could call it a perfect salvation. You could call it a perfect righteousness. And when this kind of perfection comes the imperfection disappears. This is the righteousness that comes from the perfect love of the Father. I'm talking about the love that serves as the never-failing off switch of fear. Friends, we don't have to hide behind bushes. We don't have to cover ourselves with fig leaves. We have been clothed in the perfect love of God. Jesus lived a perfect life for us so that through, come on, His perfection, through His perfection, we could be adorned with a spotless, blameless, beyond reproach perfection. Our clothing from the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness comes from the grace and truth that we have been clothed with power from on high, with a new covenant. That is our clothing, friend. It is a new covenant that has come down. The Scriptures tell us, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This new speaks of both a new creation and a new covenant. I'm talking about a covenant that is not held together by 613 commandments, but by one love. A covenant that does not make us walk the skywalk of do's and don'ts. Not only have we been clothed with power from on high to become new creations in Christ Jesus, and clothed with power from on high to live under this new covenant of grace, but we have been clothed with Christ himself. Jesus is the Father's most extravagant expression of love. By putting on Christ Jesus, we have put on the Father's perfect love. My final scripture. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 26 through 28. Look at these words. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. There is no skywalk connecting the old covenant to the new covenant. Therefore, we never need to fear a falling. In Christ, we are high and lifted up, seated with him in heavenly places. The scriptures say, as he is, so are we in this world. Fear is a powerful and debilitating emotion, but it disappears when perfection comes. Fear cannot abide in perfect love any more than darkness can abide in light. Logic and reasoning may seem like great mental exercises and contributors to one's well-being, but they can quickly become companions of fear. We must fully trust in Christ alone. He alone is the source of eternal love, the off switch of fear. The world and even the church at times can get very heavy laden with unbelief. They exhaust themselves in their feeble attempts to believe harder, walk in love better, and turn on and off all their switches, known as the 613 commandments, never realizing that God's perfect love has been made available to all who will come to Him by grace through faith. Grace is the gift of God. Friends, we can speak in tongues. Go ahead. <laughs> we can move mountains. Go ahead. Try it. We can give our bodies to the flames. We can beat our drums and we can clang our cymbals. But without love, we are like those Corinthians. We gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Come on. 
<laughs> love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The Greek word behind our English word perfection speaks of completeness, perfection, and a finished work. This perfectly describes our union in Christ. Complete, perfect, and finished. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. Friends, there are going to be seasons of conflict. I get it. Mountains will fall, seas will squall, and the nations will brawl. In such times, we are to remember that God is our refuge and strength. He is our ever-present help in trouble. He is our help amid the tightness we face. He is the one who makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He is the one who breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And then he whispers, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Friends, we have been clothed with power from on high. We have been clothed with a garment of salvation. We have been clothed with the new covenant of grace by faith. Old things, well, they're passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We have put on Christ. Therefore, we have been clothed in His perfect righteousness. Friends, we have so much to be thankful for and much to rejoice about, but nothing more remarkable than the truth that we have been clothed in the Father's love, the off switch of fear. Amen. Father, we thank You so much that you are showing us, you're revealing to us. And it's only by the Spirit that we can see. But you're revealing to us the magnitude of your love. That when we can see the unconditional love of Christ, we can see the demonstrations throughout the Word, even throughout our own personal lives, of your involvement, and your expressions of love. We thank you, Father, that you've given us tongues to use your word. And through those words, though they be few, they are powerful. Words like, peace be still. Words like, love never fails. Thank you, Father. Let those be our default when we find ourselves in fearful situations. Let us just speak to the storms of life and say, peace, be still. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. 
I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.